Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week called The True Christian, a study in the book of Colossians. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians 1, 21 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, If. If. You know, that word's an incredible word. You know, in English, it's only two letters. It's a very small word, but in meaning and in implication, the word is formidable. I'll take you to Disneyland, says a dad to his daughter, if you obey your mom and stop talking back to her. Well, there's a promise, but it comes with a condition. I'll let you have and keep this car if you'll make all the payments on time until they're entirely done. That will require ongoing sacrifice, and in many cases, it'll go on for years if it's a condition. It means that the promise is dependent on something else. If the promise were absolute and unconditional, then the word if would never appear. Well, we're about to encounter such an if in the passage we're studying today. And I must warn the listener that the if we find can be, well, quite distressing and even cause a great deal of unease. But let me assure you at the outset, God does not put an if into our conversation with us unless he knows that if is absolutely necessary. So let's read the text before us and see where we're going. And I'm reading Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now, we've got a lot of work to do before we come to that word, if. You know, for starters, let's remind ourselves what Colossians is all about. It's about identifying the real Christian, the genuine Christian. You know, a great problem had manifested itself in that church. You know, Colossae was a city, apparently, that allowed for many religious and philosophical options. And rather than abandoning Christ for one of the religious options in the city, well, the temptation of the church there was different. The Colossians were tempted to incorporate some of the religious and philosophical options out there and make it all a part of their faith. And today we call this syncretism. It was not just a problem with the ancient Colossian Christians. You know, it's one of the principal problems in our day. Constantly the temptation exists to take the Christian faith, which was, as Jude puts it, a faith once for all delivered to the saints— and to take that pure gospel and inject it with foreign elements. The motivation for that is often, well, the Christian faith will appear more palatable to the people we're trying to reach. And there's still another motivation. It's that the Christian faith will be more palatable for us Christians. We won't feel the offense that strongly anymore. Well, very well, that's the issue, and that's why Paul writes the letter. And we also noted that in the last section, Paul makes the case for the supremacy of Christ. Now, why in the world would anyone be tempted to add anything to Jesus and to make Christianity a religion of Jesus plus? You know, Jesus plus contemporary ideas. Jesus plus clever marketing plans. Jesus plus a more acceptable sexual ethic. Jesus plus anything. Understand the person of Jesus, and you're going to see that it can never be Jesus plus. It can only be Jesus minus. 
will not enhance Jesus by dressing him up in modern clothing, will rather diminish his splendor. But now as we come to our paragraph today, we're going to notice that Paul switches from that to discussing the salvation that the Colossian Christians have experienced. Not only is Christ all-glorious, but the work he has accomplished in the Colossian Christians is also a glorious work. I mean, step back, he says, and have a look at what Jesus did for you. So let's go to Colossians 1.21 again, and notice how it was for them before they came to Christ. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And the first word that describes the former condition of these people, and indeed it describes our former condition as well, is that you were once alienated. You know, in Ephesians, Paul expands on that condition of alienation. He says that believers were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And he meant there that Israel was the covenant nation. They had a covenant with God. The Gentiles had no covenant with God. He said that they were once without hope, that God would have mercy on them. They were without God. That is, God had made no commitment to do good to them. All of that was contained in the word alienated. But left by itself, that word alienated might mean that we're being portrayed as victims of a horrible set of circumstances which are beyond our control. But Paul doesn't want us to think that way. For right after the word alienated, he uses the phrase hostile in mind. That is, in our inner thinking, we were given to thoughts of constant and incessant rebellion against God. There are no innocent people who are alienated from God. We're not victims. No, no, we're rebels. We find the idea of God to be offensive. We wage war in our minds against the knowledge of the one true God. And Paul expands on that thought in Romans 1, 18 to 23, where he says that nature itself teaches us something of God's invisible attributes, most specifically his eternal power and divine nature. But, says Paul, that knowledge isn't helpful because the human heart is excited by rebellion. Rather than expanding our understanding of the knowledge of God, we suppress what little knowledge we have. Instead of acknowledging that we owe to God an eternal debt of gratitude for everything that we have, we refuse to honor God and we prefer honoring the creation, created things over the Creator. And eventually that leads to a conclusion. None of us are righteous. None of us seeks God. Indeed, in place of the true God, we build an idol, a forgery, a clever ruse to fool ourselves. The God or the gods we create are acceptable to the human sinful condition, so much so that we quiet our sinful consciences by convincing ourselves that our idols are good and consequently we are good as well. We're not alienated from God because we're victims. We're alienated from God because we're rebels against the ultimately holy and worthy and and lovely God. But even here, Paul's not yet done. We're not just hostile in mind and building idols everywhere to replace the true God, but we're also doing evil deeds, he says. And evil deeds refer to the well-known truth. You see, bad theology, it always leads to bad ethics. The law of God is now subverted. We make good into evil and evil into good. And again, we're reminded of what Paul said in Romans 1. God abandoned sinful people. He gave them over to dishonorable passions, to impure and idolatrous sex, taking the sexual relationship that was designed for lifelong marriage and making it into something else. And so in 1 Peter 4, verse 4, Peter says, with respect to this, they're surprised 
when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So when we're hostile to God, we put no restraint on behavior, even on acts of hatred. It's not just sexual activity. It's a host of other behaviors. It includes envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slandering, inventors of evil. And Paul speaking to the Colossians, remember, he says, that's what you were before you met Christ. That's the world you lived in. That's why you were alienated from God. And might I stop here because I can almost hear the critic. You know, surely we're not all that bad, the critic says. Oh, that's true. God is very gracious, and often, even in our unconverted state, he does send the Holy Spirit to restrain the worst of our impulses. It's God's grace that prevents every person and every civilization from going ever deeper into unbridled evil. But God may, because of the hardness of human rebellion, allow individuals and societies to sink further into multiplying darkness. And some might argue, why is the picture so dark? And it's dark because God is altogether glorious and righteous and we're not. Also remember that God insists that we recognize our condition, that we recognize in that how great is our salvation. Jesus said that it was the person who is forgiven little who loves little, but the person who is forgiven much and knows it loves much. You know, whenever we minimize our culpability and sin, we minimize the overwhelming gratefulness that we, that we owe to Christ for having done so much for us. We need to gaze into the blackness of our sin lest we miss the light of God's mercy in Christ. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, the contrast between verses 21 and 22 is as great as the contrast between what we once were and what we have now become in Christ. Notice the words, he has now reconciled. And the word reconciled means that before the reconciliation happened, the relationship was broken and destroyed. There was a time when we need to confess this, that God was angry with us beyond measure. The world was his. It was made for him. And rather than glorifying God, we hated God. And God was provoked by our sins. The wonder of the gospel is that which was hopelessly broken has now been restored. November is an exciting time at Back to the Bible Canada. This month, we offer you a booklet of meditations entitled Quiet Spaces for Christmas, a 30-day devotional focused on the themes of Christmas. It invites you to spend time daily reflecting on God's Word and hiding the truth in your hearts. We're also offering an alternative gift for the youngsters in your life. It's a wonderful story from the pen of Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway called Jake and the Christmas Surprise. This funny, thoughtful story is perfect for that bedtime read with the kids or grandkids. It also provides questions for reflection at the end of each short chapter. Choose one of these great Christmas resources as our gift to you. And if you'd like both or additional copies, they can be purchased at backtothebible.ca. We hope these resources will bless you and your loved ones this coming Christmas season. Colossians 1.22 not only affirms that we were reconciled to God, but it, but it goes on to say that we were reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. 
That phrase, in his body of flesh, sounds strange to our ears. I mean, what can Paul mean by such an unusual phrase? Well, the phrase, in his body of flesh, really is a Hebrew way of saying something that, well, let me say it in a way that's familiar with us, in his human body or in his physical existence. See, Paul's emphasizing that Jesus became fully human in order to reconcile us to God, and two things have to be borne in mind. And the first is that the full humanity of Jesus is always an important truth to both understand and also to defend. For if Jesus wasn't fully human, then his life is illusory. Listen to how passionately John defends that in 1 John 4, 2, and 3. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Wow, listen to it. Deny the humanity of Christ, says John, and you belong to the spirit of Antichrist. Now, that's the first thing. The doctrine of the full humanity of Jesus is essential to genuine Christianity. But there's a second thing also here. Jesus' full humanity is necessary for our salvation. And I say this because Jesus not only died for us, he also lived for us. To speak about his body of flesh is to speak about his earthly life, in which he fully obeyed the law of God, kept all the commands, never sinned against God. He did this as fully man, the man who kept the commands for us. We as Christians not only testify that Jesus died for us, we also say he lived for us. And when we testify as we do, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, we're not saying that we are righteous. We're saying he was righteous and he was righteous for us so that his record of righteousness would be credited to our account. And that's why when I'm asked on that final day whether my actions on earth were good enough to merit heaven, I'm going to say, no, definitely not. I did not make the grade, but Jesus took the exam for me, and he was good enough, and I am counted righteous on the basis of his record, not my own. See, but if we deny his full humanity, we have no human record of righteousness that will count for us. But notice, as we're studying Colossians 1.22, that we're not only told that we're reconciled in his body of flesh, but also we're told that this was done in his death. That is, when Christ died, he died for us. He bore our sins on his body in the tree. By his wounds were healed. That is to say, he's our substitute, suffering in our place. And by his horrifying death, the righteous anger of God against us for our sins has been satisfied in him. The punishment for our sins is paid in full. Nothing is left undone. God's demand for justice is satisfied in his son who suffered and died in our place. And hence, Paul can say what he says now to the Colossian Christians. The reason the impossible has happened, the reason we're reconciled to God, is because Christ took on flesh and suffered for you and I. And notice now in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, that is, there's nothing but nothing that can now condemn you. And those three words are important, holy, blameless, above reproach. See, to be holy is to be cleansed from all sin, separated from it, made acceptable to God. To be blameless is to be faultless without any blemish. And to be above reproach means that no charge can now legitimately 
be brought against us. Now, these words don't mean that after our conversion, we don't sin anymore, but they do mean, and hear this now, that there's a future consummation coming when you and I stand before the throne of God and on the basis of what Christ has done for us, if we've repented of our sins, if we trusted his once for all life and sacrifice on our behalf, then when we stand before God, he will find in us no default, no blemish, no charge against us will prevail. And that's the good news of the gospel. Whoever you are, no matter what you've done, your only hope is repentance for your sins and throwing yourself utterly and completely onto Christ, trusting in his merits and not in your own. And that's the good news. And that's the only hope any of us has. But many of us leave it right there. As far as we're concerned, that's the end of the story. Except in this passage, as I've already said, there's an if. Verse 23a, if indeed. You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If, if you continue in the faith. Now, if you're unaccustomed to hearing such words, you might be forgiven to think, well, this must be the only place in the Bible where, you know, we even hear such alarming words. I mean, perhaps even right now, you're comforting yourself by thinking, look, it's an obscure passage. Perhaps there's another meaning to it. I mean, after all, I've always been told that if I pray the sinner's prayer, then no matter what happens to me after that, I'm good to go. And with those false assurances, you've comforted yourself. I'm afraid I have very bad news. This is not the only passage in the New Testament that speaks this way. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That is, you won't reign with him if you don't endure. And if you deny him, he's going to deny you, regardless of whether you've prayed the sinner's prayer. Look at Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or Hebrews 10.26-27. to For if we go on sinning, yeah, if we go on sinning, Deliberately, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, the entire tenor of the New Testament holds that in order to be saved, you must endure or persevere all the way through to the end. And that's why Hebrews 12, 14 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, I hope you see that if, although it's only a two-letter word in English, is a profoundly important word. And reading it here, that we need to continue on in the faith, and then Paul adds the words, stable and steadfast. I mean, the meaning's clear. We dare not waver from our faith. We dare not ignore it. We dare not drift into unrighteous patterns of living. We must not think, oh, well, I've settled the matter. I mean, I've, I've given my life to Jesus, so regardless of how I live, I should be fine. Don't you think that way? See, in our day, this is especially poignant as we sometimes hear of even Christian leaders who are discovered to have, you know, lived a lie, who have lived in sinful sexual relationships all the way through to the end. And some of us think, well, you know, I guess they're going to miss out on the best rewards in heaven. Now listen to the if. We will be presented blameless before God and receive eternal salvation if we continue in the faith, unwavering, steadfast, persistent, resolute, without swerving from the lifestyle of the gospel. And no, my dear listener, that's not me saying that. It's the passage of Scripture that says it. And someone might ask, does that mean I can lose my salvation? And to that I respond, surely not. To believe truly in Christ is to receive persevering, enduring faith. 
that repents of evil for a lifetime, that clings to the promise of the gospel for a lifetime. That's why Paul could tell the Philippian Christians that he was sure in their case. And you're to find this in Philippians 1 verse 6. He said he was sure that he who began a good work in them would carry it out to completion. That good work would grow and mature until we're glorified in heaven, never departing from the Lord. But that assurance that the Lord will protect our persevering faith, that doesn't mean we won't be in a struggle. Philippians 2.12, we're told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But even there, where we're told to exert all the energy we have and to live our lives in faith, consistently fighting sinful tendencies and repenting daily of our sins, even there, we're told that it is God who is at work in us, causing us to will and to work for his good pleasure. If it's such an important word, Show me the person who never lets go of Christ. I'll show you the genuine, real Christian. Show me the person who makes a commitment and then goes out and lives like the devil, and I'll show you a person who never had genuine faith from the outset. The if in this passage is an if that shows us whether or not we're the real thing. It was Jonathan Edwards who affirmed that the mark of the true believer is this. Even though we should fall in the same sin a hundred times, we'll still get up a hundred and one times. The mark of Christ in our lives is that we'll never stop fighting for holiness, regardless of how miserable our track record has been. We will repent. We will turn from evil. We will fight for holiness. Verse 23 again. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. A gospel that saves, a gospel that gives assurance, a gospel that fights for holiness, that's what's behind the word if. Thanks so much, John. Now, let me ask you this, though. Help us understand maybe the merits of, or if you have any concerns about the use of the sinner's prayer. Um, I have concerns of it, but you know I, I don't want to throw it out because I do think that we need to take uh, new converts through a prayer in which they surrender their lives to Christ. I think it's important for us, however, to say that the evidence of the new life is the new life and not the prayer that we happen to have prayed. And I think as long as we make that clear, I I don't think there's a problem, and I would continue to urge us to use the sinner's prayer. It can be a good thing. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You know, as a Christian, you may have had questions about the Bible or spiritual life that are hard to answer. Perhaps you felt that certain questions are best kept to yourself, especially those that involve doubts. Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we believe in bringing these to light. Finding answers to difficult questions is critical for an unwavering and steadfast faith. That's why we're adding to a very popular video series from a number of years ago called Ask Dr. John. We gathered up our most complex and frequently asked questions for Dr. John to unpack in a two-part series on YouTube, airing November 17th. So be sure to check us out on YouTube. Subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss the next episode. And if you're able, 
please consider a donation to help make resources like these available for free to all. You can give at backtothebible.ca.